chainsaws. Those are just fun. I mean, it's like having a Harley in your hand. Even if you hate motorcycles, like there's a sexiness to chainsaws. There is a, you know, Peter Jensen, again, magical human. You know, he shows up for training with, you know, the saw with like a 16 inch bar, you know, showing that like it actually takes more brain power to do a lot of good work with a small saw than it does a giant one. Welcome to Trail Effect. I am your host, Josh Blom. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. Episode 118 features Martha Beckton. Martha is intense. She's all about trails, training others, and chainsaws. Martha is the owner of Beckton Trails and recently took on the role as the Director of Environmental Planning and Development Program at the Rockingham Community College in Wentworth, North Carolina. On top of all of this, Martha recently authored an IMBA document titled The Trail Champion's Introduction to NEPA, as NEPA is an absolutely critical component during the planning process, especially for trails on federal lands or when federal funds are attached to a project. Cooley Creative is the title sponsor for this episode. They design and build custom websites as well as help companies with branding, photography, and e-commerce. Cooley Creative was started in Wisconsin, but is now based out of Bend, Oregon. Jared from Cooley Creative is a friend of mine. We've traveled together on multiple mountain bike trips, and sometimes he sends it. For more information about Cooley Creative, head over to www.dojustsendit.com. That's www.dojustsendit.com, and you will get to the Cooley Creative website, so check it out. Since briefly escaping the frozen tundra of Wisconsin and landing in the land of Oz trails, I was able to test the Kettle Mountain Canyon bib, and it's everything it's cracked up to be, with its incredibly comfy chamois and three rear pockets that are designed to carry all of your junk. The Canyon bib also has over 200 five-star reviews. Surely 200-plus mountain bikers can't be wrong. Check out the Kettle Mountain bib and support the trail effect over at Kettle Mountain Apparel using kettlemountain.com backslash josh. You can also hit the link in the show notes. I'd like to take a moment to thank all of the listeners and guests who have taken the time to share the Trail Effect episodes on their social media accounts such as Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, along with taking Trail Effect in their posts. This has helped a lot more listeners find the Trail Effect podcast. Please keep up all the commenting, sharing, and tagging of Trail Effect. I'd also like to thank all of the listeners and guests who have signed up to be supporters of Trail Effect through Patreon. These actions mean a lot to me. Now on to the Trail Effect with Martha Beckton. We are now recording. I'll do a quick intro and then we'll be off. Here we are today on Trail Effect. I have Martha Beckton, the owner of Beckton Trails. She's also the director of Duke Energy Trails and Environmental and Planning Program at... Wait, I'm going to say that over. Yeah, <laughs> this yeah, is why we had a lot. I love long titles. Like, who's, whose was the longest title? I think it was uh, Danny Twilley has like a ridiculously long title, right? It's so bad. <laughs> <laughs> Here we are today on Trail Effect. I have Martha Becton. Martha is the owner of Becton Trails. She is also the director of Duke Energy Trails and Environmental and Planning Development Program at Rockingham Community College in Wentworth, North Carolina. How's it going today, Martha? It's going so good. I feel like I'm living my best life right now. (laughs) Well, you have a ton going on and we're going to get into all of that. But let's quick kick it off with the fact that 2023 is the year of the trail signed into law by the governor in North Carolina. How is that? It's the coolest thing ever. 
I joke with people that um, North Carolina is like the Silicon Valley of outdoor recreation. And full disclosure, you know, I didn't really, you know, I dove into North Carolina sort of off the deep end over the summer last year, early, late fall, early fall. And Year of the Trail, it was signed in legislation. And I actually have, <laughs> it's such a, I'm, I'm doing so many cool things. My position with Rockingham Community College, um, I get to do a lot of stakeholder development. I get to be on the phone talking to people, you know, for contacts, understanding the needs um, of our area to figure out how we at the school could help meet them. And, you know, one of the people I was talking to is Mary Joan Pugh down in Alamance County, kind of the trails director. Um, she has a long title and it's complex to explain, but that's what she does. You know, she was involved. A lot of people were involved in making Year of the Trail a thing. And it was born out of the, her experience of, you know, these are rural counties. And how do you get the elected officials to kind of get it with outdoor recreation? Because um, people understand hunting, fishing, putting the boats in the lake. Um, and people also do understand maybe heading to the mountains to hike. Um, but, you know, how does that make sense where you are in your county where maybe there's not a lot of places to hike or even walk, right? Because we, you know, we have cars. Um, and she's like, just getting the elected officials on a trail, just walking and talking. As soon as I get them out there and we start talking about stuff, don't matter. I'm making this up, you know, hour, half hour. You know, she's like, it just clicks. And um, obviously a lot of things happened between that realization and signing Year of the Trail into legislation. But it's a huge campaign statewide with basically a toolkit that can be scaled up, scaled out to meet the needs of your community. In my own words, to help make outdoor recreation make sense where you are. You know, because a lot of us in it get it. Uh, and we talk to each other, but that, that doesn't always mean that the things we're seeing really hit home, you know, with folks living, um, you know, living where they live, working two jobs, single mom, you know, they're like, that, that's other people's stuff, um, but it's not. So you're the trail campaign. It's, it's a lot of things, but most of all, it's super exciting. And they have really cool stickers, the design, all the design stuff in North Carolina. Like, I just love it. It's, I don't know. It's dumb stuff to get excited about, but they're just knocking out of the park. Yeah, you're right about the whole Silicon Valley thing, too, because there is so much going on in North Carolina with trails. And there has been for a long time. It's just yeah. now it's really starting to take off, both publicly and privately. Yeah. Well, and into another sentence or five on that is, you know, Asheville has been kind of a hub making it up 20 years, you know, in the western part of the state. And a lot of folks, when they think out their wreck, they think, you know, the Appalachian portion of North Carolina. And, you know, I've had the pleasure of talking to, I'm not good at remembering names, but, you know, the, the director of Made by Mountains to help understand what they're doing and how our program can, um, you know, plug in in different ways. And also talking to the state, you know, North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources. The state is basically scaling up what has been done in Western North Carolina statewide. And they're doing that in a lot of different ways. And, and part of what had happened out in the Western part of the state is um, our direct started clicking and on all the different areas, you know, gear manufacturing, providing experiences in the infrastructure, and then all the things that orbit around that. Um, and the state, you know, it, it's progressive in this way. They're like, 
we can actually scale this up because it it applies everywhere and it's it's exciting to be part of that. Well, let's get into your backstory and how you transitioned into trails as a profession because you weren't always into trails. No. In fact, you spent some time on the water, I think. Well, kind of. <laughs> I have a weird story. I don't have a good analogy, but my most recent one is like, if you look at my resume, it's like someone did a bunch of coke and did all the jobs they could think of. <laughs> <laughs> you know, another another analogy would be like, take an eight-year-old that just came home from like their older brother's career fair and you ask them what they did and wanted to do and they're like, well, I like boats, so I want to be in the Navy and then like... I want to own a store and sell records. And then um, I like chainsaws and uh, <laughs> it's hard. I mean, I grew up in a rural area in Florida, in central Florida. People know about, you know, Disney World and Miami, but <laughs> the rest of Florida is very rural, especially inland. And um, grew up in the woods, had horses, but not the fancy kind of horses, like the kind of horses that you get rid of when they're not good for, you know, doing cattle anymore. Couldn't wait to get out of my small town. Nothing going on there. Knew I wanted to go to school, but I mean, I'm pretty much the first in my family to, especially my immediate family to, uh, my dad went to like a partial semester of school and realized that they couldn't afford it and went to the Navy. I knew I wanted to go to school needed to figure out a way to pay for it. And the Navy ended up being that ticket. Um, so I enlisted first, picked up an ROTC scholarship. And just partially from what I was around growing up, my dad was an electronics technician. You know, I, I scored really high on the ASVAB. And the ASVAB is a, a way that when the military enlists folks, it's kind of a selector. Like, what do you have aptitude for? Um, and it's not always aptitude exactly. It's kind of like, what have you been, been around? You know, and I was around electrical stuff and building stuff. And my brother's a mechanic. So I kind of had my pick of um, jobs and I went into the nuclear Navy because it, you know, paid well. And I pursued that as well, coming out of my ROTC scholarship, which is what brought me to DC. I was here with Naval Reactors. I mean, people like, so you're a nuclear engineer. I mean, kind of, but not really, because I I was a math major in college. Tried to get a master's in mechanical engineering in a year in order to like qualify to be at Naval Reactors, you know, which is headquarters for the Naval Nuclear Navy. And so it brought me here and I fell in love with DC. And I also just fell in love with like, you know, I was not a rock star at Naval Reactors, but I loved a lot of it. I loved the process. They're very much, Admiral Rickover was a big believer in responsibility. You can delegate tasks, but you can't delegate responsibility. And there's a lot of ownership. And when a problem comes up, you know, it's like 300 people at Naval Reactors. And if you're the lead engineer, you might be a young engineer, but your job is to understand the problem, gather as much information from the person on the phone as possible. And you go around the building and you're talking to all the experts. Like you're gathering exactly what is needed and who's needed to work on the problem. And you might be the lead, but it doesn't mean you have to know all the stuff. It's like the right way to do it because no one can know all the stuff. And the technical debates would get really heated and it's never personal, which I've, you know, I've taken with me, which is sometimes difficult working with other folks who don't work like that. Cause you have to be like, wait, this person thinks I'm like tearing them down. Like, no, like we're working on the technical thing. But yeah, fast forward, you know, when I was done with that, got into small business with the person who became my husband. He owned a record store here in DC. I really wanted to do small business here. We did that for a while together. Had a kid, did a gardening blog, needed money. So went back into federal government as a patent examiner. 
because my my background made me uniquely qualified for this other bizarre job that exists in federal government as a patent examiner. And my background meant I was doing um, combustion, like things on fire combustion, not engines, because I did that in grad school. Ventilation, which if it moves air through something, it's ventilated, just everything. And then uh, stoves and ovens. So if you have a nice stove at home, I might have, there might be a patent related to that stove with my name on it, but also industrial stuff to do with stoves and ovens. And it was when I was at the patent office in 2016, my daughter was six. Um, and that's when I, I, I sought opportunities with her growing up here in the city. I wanted opportunities for her to get her hands on tools and just doing stuff with the tools. Almost didn't matter what. Came across PATC, Potomac Appalachian Trail Club. So for folks who don't know the Appalachian Trail, it's maintained by a whole host of clubs that are responsible for sections of it. And ours is a really big section here in the Mid-Atlantic. You know, I looked in their calendar and they, they were building a cabin, you know, with, with hand tools, traditional tools. And it wasn't specifically only traditional. You know, they had saws and stuff like that. But um, I was like, you know, my dad and essentially my grandfather built the house I grew up in. And I was like, you know, I emailed a point of contact and I was like, hey, I'm a single mom and the daughter is like six. Like, can we come out and be part of this? And I emailed a bunch of different points of contact for different things going on within the club, including some trail crews. One of the trail crews responded back, I think it's kind of inappropriate. It's going to be unsafe for you and your daughter to come out here and join us. And I'm like, okay, well, I, I know that's factually not true, but I clearly don't really want to fight that fight. And the person who I reached out for for the cabin building, he's like, you know, you're welcome to come out. We're kind of in a lull right now. It was April. Why don't you come out to Cadillac Crew? I didn't realize he was the head of Cadillac Crew at the time, too. Um, he's like, there's always something for everybody. You know, and we stay the night and there's kind of a nice camaraderie to it and it's social. And I was like, yes. And that's what we did. Uh, and it quickly, it escalated quickly. And now, you know, it became a lifestyle. <laughs> and it really, that um, my first two trips with Cadillac Crew and my daughter, um, you know, the things that just change the trajectory of your life. We, we all have them. Um, I've got a bunch, but that was one. And it was that one guy, you know, who replied to me, like, come on out, you know, and he didn't have to say that, you know, and it's clear within the, within the club that there was, um, it's a club, you know, it's not a, a government organization. They can make their own roles, interact with people how they want. Had both those responses been like the first one, um, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. Did that first response really, really light a fire under you? Hmm. So it opened my eyes because, um, I've lived a weird life. I think a lot, I was born in 1978. So I think a lot of us females who are kind of like between like, I don't know, early 40s to mid 50s, you know, we came up thinking everything was good. You know, we don't have any barriers. We can do what we want. Everything's equal. Um, but we didn't realize that that really wasn't the case. And I think looking back, we can see how like, God damn it, like we really, we did have to kind of fight some bullshit, you know, and, and, I feel differently about it now, but you know, 2016 was before me too. And I, I, I was surprised by the answer, but it's, it's kind of like he flew his flag high, you know? And I was like, I don't need this to be hard. Right. I just, I just separated from my husband. <laughs> I live in an apartment in DC without a, you know, I just, it's without a car, without a car for a while. I'm like, I don't need this to be extra hard. So it became to light a fire under my ass on a lot of things. At the time, I was just kind of like, well, wow, kind of surprised at that response, but that's not my fight to fight now. I do fight it now, though. Yeah, I'm excited. <laughs> so fast forward, 
you started Beckton Trails. I did. What was the what was the impetus between the link in 2016 and and starting Beckton Trails? I started Beckton Trails formally getting all the paperwork organized um, October 2021. So you know, it's like five years after first going out with PTC. Peter Jensen, right? Peter Jensen is a trail builder, one of the early um, presidents of PTBA, Professional Trail Builder Association. You know, that first year, I just, I wanted, I'm, you know, I'm a collector of skills. I got, you know, it's like, whoa, can I learn this? You know, one of the first things I wanted to do when I looked at PUTC's calendar is I saw chainsaw training and I was like, I want to do that. And I want to do that. I want to do rigging. I want to do traditional tools. At the time, I didn't realize like you had to actually be maintaining a trail section. <laughs> so I was like, okay, well, where's the trail section maintained so I can do all this stuff? So, um, yeah, Peter Jensen was my first chainsaw instructor and it's actually um, it was in 2016 it was later that year and he is everything i'm not other than we're similar stature he's cool calm and collected and stoic new englander man of little words but when he speaks it's you know makes sense you listen where chainsaw training was is we all were staying the night at blackburn trail center and he rolls in and he's kind of quiet stoic and i'm like i'm gonna drive this guy crazy like i gotta be you know i can't be all pinging off the walls so I was like, I was like, Peter, so what do you do for a living? And he's he's putting his dinner in the fridge. And he turns around to me. He's like, the audience can't see me. I'm mimicking it. He's like, I'm a professional trail builder. And I was like, what? <laughs> there are a thousand questions. So that launched a relationship that Peter may or may not like always like. Um, but yeah, I mean, I immediately went to the corner of the room and texted my partner. I was like, Robert, this is a thing. Like, you can make money doing this and be a professional. <laughs> I was, I was instantly, you know, over the course of that weekend. At that point, I decided I was going to become a chainsaw instructor, <laughs> and I was going to become a professional builder, <laughs> which is kind of like the story of my life. I was like, oh, I want to do this thing. So a lot of stuff has happened, and there's a lot to fill in. There's great stories for all of it. But um, the really fast forwarding, Robert and I, Robert Fina, his He's a key co-player in all of this. We were driving back, I would say September, might have the date wrong, 2021, from Tennessee, um, from Teleco Plains, Cherokee National Forest. We just finished a contract with SAWS, Southern Appalachian Wilderness Stewards, one of the most amazing organizations, teaching trail rigging uh, to their crew and the Forest Service, who is going to be basically a train-the-trainer for rigging um, for a project they were launching off at Bald River Falls. And I get back and, you know, I got this nice paying job that has wild flexibility with the patent office. You know, they were the OGs, telework. They've been doing it for 20 years. You know, you have enough rope to hang yourself with and income's good. And I just literally would rather die <laughs> and have to do all the work I needed to get done in the next two weeks. To, like meet my numbers. It's very quota based. It's all very by the numbers, uh, which is kind of a good thing. But always chafed under. And we're just driving back. I'm like... We just, this is what I love. I love so many aspects of what we just did. I love giving people the skills they need to do durable, quality, sustainable trail work and projects. I love the puzzle, especially location based training. Like, this is the project, you know, where it's going to be used. I feel like that's the best. It's not always, you know, practical 
it takes a whole basket full of training things, but amazing people, you know, Mason, Mason Boring, one of the folks who was Forest Service staff, you know, we're sitting there, I don't even know, probably eating lunch at the falls or whatever. And he's like, yeah, my great granddaddy, maybe great, great, maybe great granddaddy. I don't know, one of his lineage. He's like, yeah, he was a, um, he was a logger here on this land, you know, up there where the wilderness is. And, um, you know, we just had a son and you know, he told me how the name of his son ties into, you know, family references and, 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 you know, Mason also living his best life. Just so excited to be doing this work. And I'm like, like I'm tingly thinking about it. I'm like, this is what I want to be doing. Like their patent office stuff is, it's important. All these things are important. It does not give me joy. <laughs> so, I, you know, on the drive back, you know, I think about a week into like digging out of the hole that I was with the work I had needed to do in the patent office. I'm just like, you know what? I'm filing the paperwork. I'll figure it out. Um, and over those next couple months, you know, brought in some work, pulled the plug. And here we are. You dug yourself out of the, the hole and, and then moved no. on. No, I didn't. I, I, I left there with all, I'm like, didn't matter. My numbers didn't matter anymore. Because <laughs> you're not going to, you know, it's matter. a good point. It was, it was not a quiet quitting, but um, I was like, I did what I needed to do for the next few months. And I was like, see you later. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, so we met at the PTBA conference in 2022 in Bentonville, and you were doing training there. I, I you know, it's funny. Wired world of trails. <laughs> I almost want to apologize to the listeners because like I don't speak very linearly and it's really hard sometimes to like keep a straight linear through line talking about stuff. Whatever you want to do, you can do it in outdoor recreation. You know, if you want to like make magic happen with graphics at a desk, you can do it in outdoor rec. If you want to be out in the field and touch a computer as little as possible, you can do it in outdoor recreation. Which shorthand trails, right? But, you know, trails is a generic term for all the stuff, you know, rock climbing, paddling, and, you know, we're both nodding our head, but, and, and the listeners of the podcast know this too, but I think it's been these last few years, you know, I, I meditate, you know, I meditate and I do yoga and, you know, I've, I've consumed enough psychology and psychiatry information on like just dealing with my own self and being a better human that I could probably like get a degree in that. Uh, so I've tuned into like, wow, I really like this thing. Why do I feel so good doing this thing? And when I look back, I've always been a helper and not just like doing the menial tasks, but like helping people understand something. And I don't know why, but um, I do tend to have a knack for taking something complex and making it help making it make sense to the person who it currently doesn't make sense to. And it, it's not because I have like, handy turn of phrase in my pocket it's just sort of listening and the set back and forth and you get there and like for instance in college i went to two different schools my first school was really small jacksonville university in florida go dolphins um and it was so small my first year there is when they were getting the football team trained to launch their first football team the following year and so i was a tutor for the football team for math you know because you still got to make the grades and it was just like it's so many great guys and you know, they're like, oh, I'm so, I'm so screwed with my grades. I'm like, don't worry about it. We got this, you know? And then over the course of about two months, they're like, you just changed my life, you know? And it's like, you know, I've, I've, been, I've been a server in restaurants, you know, I'm always training people. So 
Yeah, with the trail stuff, what I saw in PATC, and as I talk about things like the under the underbelly of like, it can sound like critiques, but it's not in a blame way. It's a, hey, let's actually talk about what's going on. You know, because trails are awesome, magical unicorns, blah, 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 sparkle eyes. There's a lot of work that's not good, right? And there's a lot of folks, especially, you know, I live on the East Coast. Right? That's what I know most. We got some legacy trails that are amazing, but they weren't laid out sustainably. They haven't been maintained sustainably. A lot of the folks doing the work never heard of what sustainable trail building even is, right? Like, like when I went out to my first PTBA conference, which is in 2017, um, it was in, in Oregon, where Robert and I had signed up for a design layout class talked by, taught by John Underwood. And he's teaching like Mike Shields curriculum. And we're an hour in and we're looking at each other and we're like, Robert's been doing this stuff for 20 years. I'd been doing it for like eight months. Right? He's like, we're doing it all wrong. Our whole club is doing it all wrong. We had this major project um, on the edge of, I'll try to remain, make things nameless, on the edge of a major national park in our area that gets like, literally thousands of visitors on a Saturday morning. You know, we had just like the weekend before come off like hand building that trail with the crew. And it's like, it's, it's a switchback nightmare. Like it's the textbook, what not to do. I mean, it's like it, the grades are awful. You know, I'm sure the trail grade, even the switchbacks is like 20%. I mean, it's like they each other like, we have to call people on the phone at lunch and tell them to stop, you know, like everything's wrong. So we're just, you know, we just see everyone giving, you know, in the words of Charlie Dundas, like they're giving you their most precious resource and it's their time. And he uses it in the context of volunteers. It applies to everyone. And even if you're paying them and it's transactional, they're still giving you their time. And we were just surrounded by people with the best intentions, doing things that not only are you destined to fail, they're like failing by the time you walk off the trail at the end of the day. Because, you know, they just put in a water bar and you look at the hikers coming through and they're bypassing it because the thing is like two feet tall, you know? <laughs> it's like, we're just seeing it just as waste of resources. Like everywhere you see, it's like that movie, what is it, The Sixth Element? I don't even know. Like all, all I see is dead people, whatever movie that's from. All we see is like wasted resources. <laughs> and so it became very important to me to like, What's the root of that particular waste I see? And it is everywhere. And so I ended up doing all kinds of craziness. But for the training components, and, and it can be some of the, the desk-based stuff too, or the people-based stuff too. Crew leadership, you know, if you, oh, non-linear. Okay, so you have a volunteer event and it's a bunch of regulars and you got three new people and you spend the time, you do great training and like they learn some skills. It's a wasted resource. If they not only never come back, but something about it sucked horribly for them and you didn't know about it. And so now they're not only not only going to come back, they may not try that anywhere else ever again. So there's lots of opportunities, I think, to be, I hate the word efficiency, but just more effective and not in a perfect way, but just, you know, these resources, time, people, money the actual natural resources and the cultural resources, like we only have so much of them. Gales up and down, right? So the training component, I do get super excited because it is magic and it ends up being like a lab of, um, especially I could do a lot of chainsaw training and that's like one of my favorite things. It's like rinse and repeat, like what's working, what's not working. You can ask people like, 
how'd that feel for you? And they're like, you know, uh, that was kind of scary, but like, I actually just saw that cookie off the end of that log. And I also, I feel like, feel all things. I feel I'm full of adrenaline. I'm kind of afraid, but I'm really proud and I'm excited. And you're like, yes, that's, ex- yes. <laughs> Versus, you know, and you can see them when they're like, I'm still feeling this really anxious, like I'm feeling da da da. And you're like, all right, well, let's work on that, you know, like the soft skills common. And I feel like, I don't know, training gets me really excited, um, writ large. And I'm going to stop talking so I could talk forever on it. <laughs> well, that's the point of a podcast. Just, I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's long form media for a reason. And we can do I might, whatever we want. I might push, I might push boundaries. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's what gets me excited about training. I, I could say it in more eloquent ways, but um, yeah, it just, it matters. And training in the, in the biggest sense, right? You know, it can look like um, online content. It can look like in a classroom. It can look like in the field. Um, it can look like, um, you know, resource professionals, you know, at a, I've had to go with Finn <laughs> on a trails project. I'm like, we are so stuck. You know, I can't people do this. And you're like, well, let's talk about that. Where are we stuck? And like helping, you know, maybe it's less training, but more like, I hate the word consulting being here in DC because it has kind of a, you know, greasy connotation sometimes, you know, helping people be more effective through mm, training. <laughs> let's stick with chainsaw training. I've done chainsaw yeah. safety training. I don't know, three or four times here in Wisconsin mm-hmm. with a the mm-hmm. guy that teaches it is a retired logger, is, you know, has spent his whole life cutting trees. And who is it? Jim Olive is his name. And I think, you know, that the chainsaw as a tool is is a very dangerous tool, you know. But at the same time, they get used by you know, it's it's I think it's some of the most critical training a person could do for being in the woods. You know, I mean you could definitely hurt yourself really bad. You could hurt other people. And it is very complex. And so when you talk about complex things, yeah. that is something that is, is very, very complex because every tree is different. Every situation you encounter is different, whether you're, whether you're, you know, felling a tree or whether you're, you know, trying to get, you know, I, I hate to use this term, but it's a term that gets used a lot. The widowmakers. Oh yeah. Like, that's mm-hmm. a real thing with trails, it's a good term. Yeah. you know, and, and that's typically what you're clearing off of trails, right? And so let's talk about, you know, what you've learned through training people, but also what you really enjoy about the chainsaw side of it, because I think that's something we need to talk about more in the industry, because yeah. so many people just take it for granted, like it's a shovel or a, or a you know, a rogo or whatever other tool you would use. Yeah. Well, let's pivot off of like you acknowledging it's a really useful tool and it's dangerous. So is, so is a car, right? Like things are, have gotten kind of funny with cars because like I have a, a 2019 Ranger and I could probably roll that thing off a mountain and arguably survive. <laughs> but if I hit someone who's not in a car, they're going to die. Right. So here in DC, we've got pedestrians, scooters, bicyclists. If you can get somewhere on a thing, we have that thing here, which makes driving complex. So, you know, reminding people that, yeah, it is super dangerous. But I think it's been portrayed as that way as well, and it, it, for better and for worse. So you were talking about every scenario is different. You know, when you approach a scenario with a saw, and it doesn't matter if it's crosscut or chainsaw, it's a puzzle. 
And it's a puzzle that can kill you. And more incidents actually at this point in time, because of safety training, more incidents are actually from the moving wood than the saw. And for folks who haven't, you know, used anything to cut wood with, whether it's a cross-cut saw or even a bow saw or a chainsaw, wood's freaking heavy. <laughs> like, you can know a rock is heavy, but, you know, I'm sure you have some folks who are like enthusiasts of the podcast who enjoy trails, but maybe don't do trail work. So when it engages your body, we're very delicate, fragile creatures. Uh, and no amount of PPE really saves you from a, a big length of wood moving into you. And so, you know, you mentioned every scenario is different and you focused on the wood. You know, how you, like you, you never, I can't remember anything correctly, but you never dip your toe into the same river twice, that concept. You're almost never the same person twice running a saw. There's so many human factors. And before I even continue, I just want to say, God bless the Forest Service in the best way. They realized, I got introduced to what I'm about to say, 2018 in Eminence, Missouri, at the Region 8 and 9 Combined Sea Sawyer Workshop. Ernie Wiltsey was the Region 8 and 9 Saw Program Coordinator, and um, he's since retired. But Pete Duncan is still the National Saw Program uh, man. And they were both there, and they, they were starting to introduce Thinking Sawyer concept, which is imminently going to be released. It's been on the cusp of being released for years, but it's going to happen any day now. It could happen tomorrow. Um, but the Thinking Sawyer came out of the Forest Service. You know, they keep data and incident reports, and um, both for wildland fire, you know, for fire and non-wildland fire. And a lot of the incidents being just human, I don't want to say human error, I would say human factor. Because we're pretty good at wearing our PPE. We're pretty good at running the saw safely. I'm doing air quotes. But, you know, a lot of the Forest Service training had been prescriptive. You know, you have to, if you're felling trees, you got to have your escape routes out the 45s off the back end of the tree. You can only cut uphill when you're bucking. You know, rules that made a lot of sense. But a lot of the injuries were happening by people following the rules. And not really being given the leeway to actually problem solve what makes sense for that scenario. So they partnered with a, a Canadian company. I do not know their name. Like, how do we address this? How do we train this? And um, don't tell anyone, but it, it's mindfulness. It's tuning into what's going on in your noggin. Because it's your head that makes all the decisions. And as soon as you, as soon as you have a, a situation that, you know, the whole fight or flight thing, what's really fight, flight, or freeze. And you're not in control of how you are programmed to react when something goes sideways. You could be amazing, but you might end up freezing. You know, an example they give in the training is you're falling a tree and you read the you read the lean wrong and it actually sits back on your saw and your back cut. So now your saw is stuck on the tree and the whole thing's precarious, dangerous, blah, blah, blah. Well, kind of the fight response is you're yanking on your saw, you're cursing at it, you're like flailing around and your actions may actually not be, they might not be the best solution. You're all reaction. And that is like you're in the lizard part of your brain. You know, you're in the part of the brain that's been with us the longest. You're not really in the thinking part of your brain. So when you can start to tune in and recognize that you're in that reactive state, you can zoom out. 
And there's lots of different ways. You know, when you're bucking, often you can kind of actually stop what you're doing. When you're felling, it's a little different. Things might be in motion and you got to think fast. But for bucking, which is just as dangerous as felling, often you can just cut the saw off and step back. Instead of, uh, there's another phrase out there, and I'm going to butcher it, but like, instead of looking too cool for school, you know, you always got to be looking like, you know, you're done. If you can recognize that you're all reactive because something's going sideways, then you can take a step back, take a break, think about it, acknowledge, I just screwed that up. I read that vine wrong. (laughs) We do have another saw here, but let's figure this out. So when I get two saws stuck in the tree, (laughs) it really helps people start to tune into this stuff and have better ways to resolve it and start thinking through what's next. And the thinking Sawyer, it's another situation where Robert and I are sitting next to each other and we're like, oh my God, this is our dysfunction when we're out sawing together and you're yelling at me and I'm crying. <laughs> you're all wrapped around the axle because we're in a time crunch and I stuck my saw somewhere and I'm feeling like I don't know what I'm doing. And you're yelling at me because we've only got a half hour before the end of the day and it's dark. Wow. <laughs> it's a whole new way to problem solve this. It changed everything. And chainsaws, the new thinking Sawyer curriculum that'll be coming out is going to help folks navigate the rest of the complexity that hadn't been being taught, which is what's in your head. And it affects it's a it's it's crew leadership. It's it's acknowledging that it's three o'clock in the afternoon and everyone's tired and it's hot and you have another blowdown you really want to get done but is that really the right choice you know because if it goes sideways are you really going to have the capacity to troubleshoot it are y'all just going to be yelling at each other (laughs) and then having to take the power head off your bar and leaving it in the damn tree because you stuck it and you know what I mean so it's like I, I get super excited about this stuff. And the Thinking Sawyer with the Forest Service helped open the door to a framework that is immediately applicable in the saw space, both crosscut and chainsaw. But honestly, can be scaled out to all things. And literally in your life. I mean, in your relationships with your people, whether you're a parent in a, you know, romantic relationship with your, your own parents, your friends, your coworkers, you know, it's, It's a really sneaky way. It's literally just meditation stuff, okay? But don't say it. Don't tell anybody, you know. It's tuning into what's going on in your monkey brain. And be like, oh, wait, look at that. I'm being a horrible human right now. I just bitched someone out because I'm worried about time or because I'm worried about looking bad or because they've been annoying me all day, (laughs) right? I'm I'm making an unsafe situation. For everybody involved. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Well, at that point, I might actually say to that person, look, I'm sorry. I just spoke to you pretty rough. Let's take a break. (laughs) I'm worried about time and really want fuel. Let's think about actually what makes sense to do here. Let's reconfigure a little bit. And did it hurt your feelings? It's okay to tell me yes. I may be like, "Mm." okay, well, that's a yes. (laughs) Um, Okay. I'm sorry. What do you think we should do? (laughs) Right. And that's different than like throwing your hands up, right? That's just sort of zooming out and doing what makes sense for that scenario, that objective that day. But y'all can come back and work together again in a productive and efficient way. (laughs) Instead of being like, I'm never working that person again. God, they're awful. (laughs) Right? 
So that was a lot, but it all feeds in the training stuff and it feeds into chainsaws. That's just fun. I mean, it's like having a Harley in your hand, even if you hate motorcycles. Like there's a sexiness to chainsaws. There is a, you know, Peter Jensen, again, magical human. You know, he shows up for training with, you know, the saw with like a 16 inch bar, you know, showing that like it actually takes more brain power to do a lot of good work with a small saw than it does a giant one. And it's, it's easier on your body. It's easier to hike in, you know. Instead of the pissing contest that happens with, you know, I got four sixty-two. Like literally, we're going out to cut six industries, guys. Like you're wasting your time and energy and fuel. And oh, you got back issues. I wonder why you have back issues. You know, look at your ergonomics and that giant asshole. Chainsaws are just—they're fun and they're empowering. And I think whether you're male or female, but you know, some folks grew up with chainsaws in their life and others did. And I, I did, but I never ran run growing up, but my dad did all the wood and I was always there with them. And, you know, I just thought it's cool and I wasn't that interested in using it. Plus he might would have yelled at me if I used it wrong anyway, but I've trained plenty of guys who, you know, they're in their thirties and they've never held a saw and let everyone know, like, it's okay to have some anxiety around it. And especially in the, um, training certification environment because your folks don't know if you're going to run a saw on federal lands you know park service forest service blm fish and wildlife you need to be trained and certified to run that saw so some folks you know people who have test anxiety okay well this is a test with a freaking chainsaw in your hand okay like it's 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 test anxiety in four dimensions oh and you could kill yourself right versus like if you do bad on a written test like sucks but you it will not kill you. So they're empowering. And I feel like they're kind of a gateway drug <laughs> to the satisfaction of using your hands. You know, here in the DC area, um, you know, we have a lot of white collar workers, you know, and may or may not have something in their life that brings them satisfaction with doing things with their hands. Or at the end of the day, you're like, I did a thing. Like, you can see the thing I did. Like, I didn't just make documents. Like, I built a bridge. I did rock work. I built stairs that will be there for 100 years. <laughs> I sawed a tree off the, off the trail. And it's just like, it's so empowering and it's so exciting. And um, whether you've been running a saw for 20 years and you're suddenly realizing ways to use it safer and more efficiently, or maybe you're learning ways to help teach it better. Or maybe you've never successfully started a saw and maybe you still flooded it, but now you've run it, right? <laughs> you know, I got a lot of things to say about saws. It's just, to me, it's a magical space of all the things that come together that are exciting. Um, and there's the whole gender barrier, the, the whole gender thing too. You know, nothing, oh man, I love you guys, but there's nothing better than an all-female saw crew. Like... <laughs> Whether it's cross cut or chainsaws, like, you know, I think of your favorite social media post where a group of people are just like loving everything about everything. That is an all female saga. <laughs> I'm going to stop talking. Well, <laughs> it's like back over to you. <laughs> it's interesting that you went there because I literally have on my next thing is being seen, mm, which yeah. I didn't. And I was trying to figure out like, as I was writing this out this morning, before we got on this, 
I was trying to figure out how to work that in. And I didn't know if I should work it in towards the end or if I should work it in the middle. And I really, I kind of settled on working it in in the middle because I think it's, I think it's super important. And then you just went there. So it actually worked out perfect. I can read your mind really. Um, (laughs) So, well, and being seen, like, let's talk about like what that means. Yeah. Well, and for context for your listeners, I feel like I've met Martha. She seems very different on this podcast. There, there's, I am a lot of things. And I, I just drove back from Rock from North Carolina last night. You know, it's a five hour drive. And like, it's like the equivalent of being high and hungover. Like, so this <laughs> it's is so perfect. exciting to be, I know. And in the morning. Like, I know. I'm neither high nor hungover, but I'm just like, I don't know. I'm just, everything's going on in such great ways. So I am kind of like running on clouds right now. And other folks are like, yeah, no, this is, this is the real Martha. Um, so being seen. We're in a different place now than we were five years ago between Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter. You know, DEI was not an acronym three years ago. Maybe, I mean, okay, maybe it was, but it wasn't something that like you overheard in the grocery store behind you, okay? Um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, which is a good three phrases that sums up a lot of things. And so being seen. So it goes in hand in hand with representation. So for folks who've been receiving REI catalogs or LL Bean catalogs for more than 10 years, God forbid you still have them from 10 years ago, which is cool. Pick one up from 10 years ago. It's white, middle-class, good-looking people wearing the gear, doing the stuff. Pick it up today. And when I say good-looking, I'm talking about, okay, they fit a certain body type profile, arguably might be too skinny. (laughs) Uh, There's no... Look, my mom was fat. She would tell you she was fat. Okay. And I'm, I'm, so I'm just going to say, like, there's no fat people in it. <laughs> no black people. <laughs> Maybe the one. You pick up a, an REI catalog now or an L.O. Bean. And it has so much more representation. Okay. It has people with gray hair. I don't dye my hair. Your listeners can't see it. Actually, the lighting is kind of hard to see it. But I have a lot of gray hair. I'm 40. I don't know how old I am. 44. Gray hair. Uh, different body types, heavy folks, skinny folks, black folks, brown folks, Asian folks, uh, transgender, uh, all the all the folks. Okay, so that's representation. Letting yourself be seen. I'm gonna interrupt myself. An example of hiding myself. I'm a female. I had a couple interactions with a couple of attorneys in the patent office. Um, how to explain patent work. There's a lot of back and forth of official correspondence. And it's it's kind of like Tom and Jerry with the old cartoons or, or, or the Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner. And you watch them check in in the morning. They punch a clock, morning, Ralph, morning, Fred. It was a sheepdog and the sheep. Anyway, and the rest of the day, they're literally trying to kill each other. And then the end of the day, they punch out, night, Ralph, night, Fred. <laughs> that is work in the patent office between the patent examiner and the attorney representing the inventor. You go after each other's throats in order to come out in a mutually agreed upon, you know, property line around the intellectual property. It doesn't have to look like that. It can look really collaborative, but on paper, it does look pretty pointed. And it's a lot like what I did at the uh, Naval Reactors. I would exchange my signature to be M.M. Becton. So you couldn't tell if I was male or female because I assume they're working with a guy. Now they didn't. The attorney didn't have to dig hard to see that I'm a female. All they had to just click a couple links on the on the office website, and they'd see my first name is Martha. But anytime an attorney wrote back to me, she like instead of Examiner Becton, 
but it was like Miss or Mrs. Becton or she, there was always just nastiness in the arguments, basically belittling me, you know, trying to undercut my arguments in a way that was personal. And so that's the opposite of being seen. Okay, I'm masking my identity. So I don't have to deal with the bullshit. It's not that different than folks who might be mixed race and they pass for whatever the dominant, you know, you know, motif would be, you know, it's the opposite is being seen. So, you know, I listened to um, a lot of, a lot of females who've been in this space for a long time, say longer than me or my vintage, they might not make a big deal of their female doing this. And their website, my website, actually, it's not obvious that I'm a woman who owns the company. As soon as you look in the photos in the gallery, I'm the, it might, you might realize it's me. I do say it's a woman-owned business uh, if you read it, but it's not, it doesn't, you know, immediately always jump out. And when I'm in full PPE, it, it's not always obvious I'm a female, I've got a chiseled chin and all this stuff. Being seen is actually making it really obvious that you are an underrepresented, you're from an underrepresented group doing this work that might not be expected of you. And so I am actually watching myself realizing that I, I mask stuff a lot of times and I'm trying to let myself be more seen as, you know, 134, you know, 130 pound, five foot four, you know, I'm approaching middle age, female doing these technical trail skills and not just like low key, owning it and being out front because it's really easy to try to step back and be like, well, you know, I'm not that qualified. I just kind of mess around a little bit because as soon as you say you're good at something and if you're sort of not, not the stereotype, sometimes you're looked at with extra scrutiny. And a lot of us overachieving females, it's because we came up trying to be bulletproof. You know, I will just be amazing. That way if someone tells me I suck, I at least know they're wrong. And the other people around me can see they're wrong. But it's, it's horrible. Like it's a waste of, you know, energy and effort, but we still do it and it's not going away anytime soon. So I'm trying to be better and I'm not always good at it. Owning my successes, owning my talent and acknowledging I don't know all the things, right? There's always someone better than you and you're always learning stuff, but actually kind of just walk with the same ass swagger that Tony Boone has. <laughs> walks into a room and that man takes up space, okay? He is tall. He talks loud. First time I really met Tony Boone in person, I was like, oh my God, we're the same person. Like, cause he's goofy. He doesn't talk really linear. You know, he can meet you where he is, where you are, but he's like a kinetic ball of energy. You know, he's not sort of the, I don't know what people assume trailbuilders are, but in my head, it's the New Englander. Okay. Like in my head, they're, you know, stoic. They know what they're doing. They don't brag. They do exquisite work. They're not goofy. And and I'm one of those things, right? So I think early in this stuff, as I have done with my whole career in these male-dominated fields, you know, mathematics, physics, engineering, nuclear power, I had to kind of be the guy who was also very obviously female, but I had to kind of do the guy things and and move in that space in a way that was both under the radar, but excellent. You had to be excellent. You couldn't screw it up. But the guys are just doing horseshit work. You know what I mean? I'm like, why is that guy so good? He's awful. He can't lay a cat out of a bag. And, and like, oh my God. You know, it's like realizing like, wait, 
we need to be seen out here doing this work. We need to stop flying under the radar. You know, Erin Amidon and I talk about this, you know, she, she was with Peter Jensen and Associates, you know, she's still that whole cloud of amazing people up there, you know, Jed Talbot and Erin Amidon and, you know, she didn't really start her, she didn't get her own business organized until the last couple of years, but we're the same age and she's been doing this since her twenties, if not, if not as a teen, I don't, she can tell her own story. Dawn Packard, you know, I was just, I was crushing a bunch of podcasts like, last night because like, I was listening a lot and I've been busy the last few months and I was like looking through your recent podcast like, oh my God, it's all of my favorite people. And so I was like, you know, crushing through Don's podcast and, you know, and she's like, you know, and I was kind of lay low and I like, keep my head down and do amazing work and I'm nodding and I'm like, I hear you. You know, I, I hear you so loud on that. And I kind of made a conscientious decision these last couple of years to be a little more out front because when I'm teaching and it's from feedback, when I'm teaching a saw class and it's 20 park service employees and I'm the one female instructor and we have three females and we get the reviews back. Not only are all the females saying, I'm so glad Martha was here. This was amazing. I've never seen a female run a saw, much less be in this position. And 90% of the guys are like, we're so glad Martha's here. I've never seen a female in a saw much less in this position. And it has opened my mind to a lot of things. So being seen is just as important as representation. And they go hand in hand. And there's a lot of us doing amazing work who aren't white guys. <laughs> We're out here. But if we keep our head, and, and again, I am not telling anyone how to live their life, but sharing maybe some, not justification, but just sharing some things that I'm thinking about. We keep our head down. No one knows we're here. And they don't know this is a viable option. Because I see, I'm, 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 I'm talking so much, but I'm not going to apologize. I'm going to say thanks for your patience. Uh, I'm going to try to strip it from any identifiable things because this is not a blame. But I was at, I've been to a couple of mechanized trail building workshops. I'm not, a, I'm not great on a machine. I have no natural talent. I would need, you know, 10,000 hours to be decent, but I love them. <laughs> I love being on them. And, um, you know, I'm much better at hand finishing, but I just haven't had time on the machine because I do all the things. You can't be great at a bunch of things if you're trying to do all the things. So nonetheless, I was at a machine workshop in recent history and it was put on by a world-class troubler. And the owner of the company was there and he had two folks helping with the workshop and, and we're talking on the side and da 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 and it was held in an open field. It was where it was their staging area, their material staging area for the project that's live that they're working on. And it had six excavators and, and there's stacks of stone and there's some big concrete, like, my, like your listeners can see my hands. They have big culvert, concrete culverts there, you know, ready to be put in. And, um, and I got to pee. Look. I was in the Navy in boot camp in the time when there was no doors on the stalls because that was how you prevented people from killing themselves. <laughs> I'm not sure it worked. But, and people would line up in front of you waiting for the stall because you had five minutes for 80 women to use four stalls. Okay, so I can pee and take a dump with any format of audience. It doesn't bother me. I do not have a shy bladder. But that doesn't mean it's right. Like no one wants to see her ass hanging out having a pee because it's like, oh, damn, I don't know, you know, so. I'm looking around for it to be. I'm like, well, if I pee here, the class can't see me. There's no, the trees are too far away. 
if I pee here, the class can't see me, but the road can see me. And if I pee here, the road can't see me, but the class can't. Well, the class I have to go back to. So I'll hide my ass from the class. And so, you know, pee and thank God I wasn't on my period. Okay. <laughs> the fright, like guys forget, like there's extra mechanics around women being out in the woods all day. Okay. And there's lots of products and all of us use the thing that works for us, but like, it's not just taking a piss and it's not just taking a crap. All right. There's extra mechanics around being a woman. So anyway, so I go back and I ask the guy who's, you know, owns a tow company. And I was just like, I was like, Hey, was it you planning this? Like were any females involved in planning? He's like, Oh no, no, we, we do this workshop all the time. I was like, yeah. And uh, we were going to be taking a little field trip as part of the workshop to another project they're working on. It's like mind blowing. You know, it's like, here's what you can do with excavators. It's rocks. And I'm like, oh my God. And I asked him, I was like, are there restrooms over there? And he was like, yeah, I think so. He's like, well, there's a port john I was like, great. I didn't really have to use it, but I used it when I was there anyway. And later in the conversation, you know, asking, I don't know if I was asking him. I think I asked him and the operator who was helping to train us. And I was like, do y'all have any female operators? Because they're big machine build company you know and the answer from the owner was like um you know we've had a few i don't know they just might not they just tend to stay like we had a girl don't get me started on girl you know if you're paying her to work it's a woman or i don't like gal either but like he's like we had a girl she was really good i don't know she just she just went off and started her own company and he just seemed a little like it's just how things are i'm like nodding my head Okay. Well, she probably didn't really feel appreciated or felt like she belonged. She probably felt like she had to fit in, you know, with the scores of males operators. And it takes energy. It takes energy when you feel like fit in, especially if you can't just take a piss in the woods behind an excavator because you don't have to squat to pee. God bless you if you're trans and, you know, things are complex, right? So... You know, had one woman been in his orbit organizing the workshop, port johns are cheap, especially when you are a big company and you're already blowing money out the ass doing all this stuff, right? You just move a port john you know, hey, can we get this port john moved over here for two days? Again, I don't care that I got to have the situation pan, but again, someone who's interested in the work, put in the effort to come out, pay money for a workshop, and this is their introduction to machine trail building in a way that might be opening a door for them and it wasn't even considered that maybe they need some very reasonable accommodations like and again if folks listen to this like well you gotta figure this shit out in the woods when you're on the machine okay that's after you already have the job and you're being paid to work and you have your crew and they know it's going to take you an extra minute to go pee because you actually got to go you know over the knoll or behind the freaking bushes to deal with your shit that is a different situation than like your first experience in this particular sliver. And it just, it drives me crazy because these are really easy things to open the door wider for people to come in. You know, when you're operating your whatever, you know, your land manager and you're operating your trails division or your trails company operating your company or your volunteer partner group operating your volunteer operations. If you're excluding half of the population, maybe you're excluding 75% of the population if you're excluding people who aren't white. You know, this feeds into workforce issues, you know, because volunteers are workforce also, because as we know, they're literally doing the work. 
Okay. So it's like, there's some really low hanging fruit to like, not make it so goddamn hard. Feel like you belong, right? To feel, to feel the people coming out like they, like this is a place for them. You know, Don absolutely nailed it. Like, you don't have to be white male doing this work. There's places, there's, there's fulfillment. There's like, this is such satisfying work, but we need to take our blinders off and start asking ourselves, how can we make more people feel like they belong in this space? Instead of it being like, you got to be able to start that 440, you know, that 462 to be able to start that saw and pull it and not flood it in order to run that thing, you know, in order to be an efficient chainsaw operator. Like, like that is, that needs to stop, right? You need to stop thinking like, well, she's got to figure out how to hang her ass out and pee, you know, right out of the gate. We'll figure that out. You know what I mean? But it's like, we need to, there's some, there's some barriers that are just, we're shooting ourselves in the foot in some ways that I think it, people are totally blind to. I could talk about this forever. Very passionate about it. But it's just, it's cute sometimes. You're like, you know, you ask questions. You're like, well, how many, you know, how many folks are these sawyers? Whatever. Name your forest or your region or your country. And they're like, well, well, I know three sea chainsaw operators and you're one of the three. And there's been really amazing conversations around that. And like things are starting to shift. But um, it's being seen allows and talking about this stuff opens a lot of conversations and it opens people's ideas who are looking at maybe doing this work and it opens ideas for people who are in decision-making positions in this work. And especially when you talk about stuff, easy breezy and like, yeah, let's problem solve this stuff. Like, what are you seeing? What do you want? Like, who do you want to come out? Like, let's talk about what you're doing. What are you seeing? When they're, I'm a big Brene Brown fan. You know, she's like, I don't want to be right. I want to get it right. I don't want to be right. I want to get it right. That opens the door. It just blows the doors off of everything, right? It lets, it opens opportunities for a much larger, for everyone. Okay. And, and, and the mentality of like, you got to really want it to do this work and you got to be tough. And well, hey, yeah, I mean, there is kind of a self-sorting but we don't have to make it harder for people to engage with it, to figure out if, if they want to put in the energy to get through the bullshit to do the work, right? Like, you know, and things are much better, I say, on the younger end. You know, some of the um, student conservation corps and organizations like SAWS. Oh, God, if you want to know how to run, run things right, you know, call SAWS and just talk to people. Really inclusive, but oh, a little off track. But the whole being seen thing, the more of us who are doing this work, doesn't matter what the work is. My passion is the technical trail skills because there are a lot of us out here doing it. But the mentality of I'm going to keep my head low and not be on the radar. You got to live your life in a way that makes sense for you. But that doesn't have to be how you do it. And the more of us who are on social media a little more, who talk at conferences, who ask to, hey, can I be a trainer? What does it take to be a trainer? Or can I help you train? Right? Because it's really easy to be an assistant, anything. <laughs> if you can get the person to not say no or like change their mind when they said no, <laughs> you're in. <laughs> and so now, now you're being seen in a way that's going to open the door for others, both above you, below you, I don't like that term, and around you. Um, and it's what we need. I'm going to stop talking and hand the mic back to you. It is what we <laughs> need. And that's, I mean, it's such an important thing. I know I recognize it. I mean, I recognized it growing up. 
I remember I was probably like, I think I was maybe in grade school. My mother was, my mother's a little crazy. She, I'll, act, I'll openly say that. My daughter could say the same. I say that about <laughs> her a lot, but she was going, she was in school at the time to be an art teacher. And I remember the first time that the term sexist came out of her mouth. I maybe was in third grade at the time. Oh She's yeah. Like, yeah I'm, you know, student teaching under so-and-so and he's, he's so sexist. And I'm like, what does that even mean? Why is that? Yeah. You know, and this is, this would have been in the eighties, you know, mm-hmm. we're the same age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was kind of like a, a light bulb moment. Like I can, I'm 44 years old too right now. And I'm, and we're talking about yeah. this and I'm, I'm like, I can think back on that. I remember I was even sitting in her car when she said that, like, yeah, that to me was a light bulb moment of like, okay, what does that mean? And how do we stop that? Because obviously she's talking about it in a negative way. Did you ask her at the time? I did. I just, didn't really yeah. know what it meant. And, you know, she's also used terms like male chauvinist pig. <laughs> and I, yeah. I literally grew up, uh, it was all women yeah. in my life. So, <laughs> and I have, and I have two daughters, you know, yeah. so, and that's, yeah. you know, that's why it's super important to me to, to highlight this stuff because I want them to have any opportunity they want to have. And it's, and it's funny. Have you ever heard the phrase, uh, I have no problem with women doing this work. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So like, let's think about that for a moment. So that means the norm is having a problem with women doing the work. Yeah. That makes, I mean, it's almost like the whole non-white thing. What that makes means white's the norm, right? Which it's phrases we we've, we're of the ether, right? But it's like tuning in and being like, I have no problem with women doing this work. And that used to roll over me like nothing. Like, oh, great. I've got an in. And now I'm like, now it's a little bit of a, not a flag, but I'll tune in. I'm like, I'll just ask more questions and sort of see maybe where their mind is to see if there's any opportunity for like some conversations or maybe a little bit of opening the door on something. Because anecdote, another person who's around our age, amazing arborist, we teach together doing, so, so, so for people who do saw stuff, so I'm a forest service, sea sawyer, chainsaw, felling. I'm not a sea evaluator yet. I haven't been doing it long enough. I'm also of the park service. I'm in their national saw program, which is not the same. That's a different debate. The intent is the same. And within the park service, I'm a regional train the trainer. So I've trained most of our folks in the national capital region who train people to do chainsaws. Most of the folks who've come in the last like four to five years. So I won't mention his name, but he's amazing. No, I will. Randy Scott. He'll appreciate it. It's a good, it's a good story. Arborist, fabulous with the GW Parkway here, park unit. Um, we teach together. And he was in my first park service class. He helped taught, he helped teach me. And the situation was around Robin. He was one of like four arborists to work with um, that week. Randy's great. Later, when he was training me to be a trainer, he took to me and another female. We were both really interested in doing things well. We're overachievers, right? We want to do things right so people won't tell us we're doing it wrong. And he was teaching us how he files a saw, and he's very opinionated. Like, this is the one way you file a saw. The rest is trash. I was like, well, how do you do it, Randy? So we worked with him for about an hour, and then I took my saw home, doing what Randy told me, and I brought it back the next day. Again, your visitors, your listeners can't see me, but he's looking at it with a skeptical eye. Like, this is going to be trash. He's from Western Maryland, talks a certain way. And look at it. I just look at all the teeth. And he puts it down. 
And he leans back, puts his arms across the chest, and he's like, right, that's pretty good. I was like, anything I can do better, Randy? He's like, no. <laughs> it changed our relationship. And two or three years later, you know, I, I, I went through his, wasn't hazing, but I, I met his criteria. And two or three years later, we're, we're sawing together. We're good. We're good pals. Light up when we see each other walk in the room. And he gets up in front of the class and he's like, he's usually got dip in his mouth. He's like, y'all get Sarah's Martha Beckton? I love working with her. And I'll admit, I kind of didn't think if someone, I can't do that. Well. He's like, I kind of admit, you know, she used to do desk work. And I kind of thought people who did desk work couldn't run a saw worth a damn. But, um, and, you know, she's a little female. Martha has changed my mind on a lot of things. <laughs> and he said it so perfectly. And I can't direct quote him, but he was just, he just kind of admitted that like he definitely had some stereotypes that maybe kind of blocked his perception of people and us becoming friends and talking plain about stuff and ribbing on each other and loving on each other. You know, now he helps opens the door. Now he can be seen, you know, as a person who's like, I'm old school. And that does not mean that I can't think about things differently. You know, and it was just, I, and I was like, Randy, I'm going to come hug you. You're amazing. <laughs> you know, I know Marla. So, you know, it was just, hmm. we, ha- we all have bias. We all have bias. And it is an unrealistic expectation, I think, that like I am going to navigate this world perfectly and get rid of all my biases. But I can definitely navigate it, I think, better acknowledging I have them and trying to be tuned into them and, um, you know, be like, huh, huh. And that whole, I have no problem with women doing this work is one of those. I'm like, step one. <laughs> Cause I've all been there with different things in our lives. You know, and I don't say that looking down my nose at all. I'm going to stop talking and hand it back to you. <laughs> well, it's, it is super important stuff. And, and I got some tangents that I'd like to go off on, but we're not going to, because we do need to get to I know the, the NEPA side of things, yeah. which is also really important and an area that for good or bad people try to avoid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about the book that you came up out with. And this is recent. So we had initially, we met, yeah. you know, 11 months ago now, 10 months ago now is, you know, in Bentonville at the 2022 PTBA conference and talked about having you on the show at that yeah. point, And now we're here and, and it's, it's good that we're here now because we wouldn't have been talking about what we're going to talk about now, which is the Trail Champions Introduction to NEPA. Let's talk about how that came about. That just got released here in January of 2023. You can find it in various yeah. places online. I will have a link to the download in the in the show notes because it is a downloadable book. It's not a huge document, it's but it's to the Couple point. It's very it really cuts through because it if anyone's ever been involved in NEPA, those documents can be very huge. And this sums it up really well. And the <laughs> fact that you came from the patent office, this was probably pretty, uh, pretty good for you to, you know, boil down into what people can digest, right? Yeah. So I wish I could say 20 things simultaneously. So how this came about was just talking to people. And it was in Bentonville, to be honest. I mean, how I got into NEPA is a longer story. And I think I'll get back to it. But like this specific document and book is, a, I think, a little bit... Um, I'm blushing like, oh, it's not really a book. You know, it's like an eight pages if you print it out. It's like a little guide. And that was, in, that was intentional. So it came about actually this express project from Bentonville. 
I was in a room and probably Rich Ed- Edwards was talking and, and I didn't actually realize that when I was in Bentonville, how big a deal Rich Edwards is, but I do now. Um, I was like, why won't he return my calls? So I was asking questions as I do in these things. And at the end of the session, oh my God, I'm blanking on his name. He was there with Rock Solid. Oh, I can't think of his name, but someone with Rock Solid. Kyle McGurk. Yes, it was Kyle. Yes. Kyle. I know Rock Solid's true pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. At least a lot of the key players. Kyle, amazing human, real to the point, had his card out. Hey, I want to, I want to link you up. We have a project we're working on and I think you're a key piece of it, which was not what the, the NEPA little book did not, that was not what he had in mind. It was another project that hasn't been released yet, but it was a similar role I was going to play in that project. And so I got put in touch with the person writing the project that's not released yet that Rock Solid had been working on with Minnesota. And they're like, you need to talk to John Cox at Emma Education. He's, I don't even remember exactly why we were connected, but we had a phone call in May. And amazing human, another person who's like roughly our age. Um, we were both just nodding at each other the whole call. You know, he's telling me what Emma Education is focused on right now. I'm like, oh God, yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah. Um, because I'm not, I used to, I mountain biked, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. And then I moved to DC, had a kid, all these things. So Emma's amazing, but I'm not, I haven't been in the world shoulder to shoulder with Emma other than like, they have the best training materials. <laughs> and things tend to get stovepiped, which drives me crazy. And it drives John Cox crazy too, you know? And so he was like, we just started talking about NEPA stuff. He's like, man, I have so many things that, gosh, I think you're going to be, you might be a really good resource for things we're working on. And I'm like, yeah, like, and y'all too, <laughs> the things I'm working on. So in short order, a couple, couple phone calls later, he touched it back to me. He's like, you know, do you know of a really good like resource for like the trail champion to use? Because as a lot of your listeners know, a lot of amazing trail projects come about from a need and a desire from the either the current users or who will be the users, okay? Because the land managers don't always have the capacity to um, like, hey, let's make more work for ourselves, right? (laughs) They have more work they can do currently. So so it often sort of comes from the user end and and trail champions are really, you know, Emba came up with a term and it fits. So yeah, we talked and he's like, here's what we're looking for. Well, when he asked me, is there a good resource at that level? And I was like, no, I've read all the resources. Um, the Park Service actually has a really good handbook and it's meant for their natural and cultural resources staff, but it's about a hundred pages. I read it because I'm a dork and I like to read source documents. It's kind of the best one at that level, but you know, the problem we were already having at PATC, to Appalachian Trail Club, is no NEPA was being done for anything, period, right? You would either, if you even knew what categorical exclusion meant, which is basically a list of things that NEPA has been done. Okay, if it falls under a CADEX, it's not that it doesn't need NEPA. Everything needs NEPA. It's already been done. And so you're like, okay, we don't have to do extra work. It falls under this list. We can just do the project. So only a few people in the club even knew that phrase, but mostly it was just, don't tell the land manager what we're doing. They've entrusted us with work. We're going to do the tread work that needs to be done. And we don't, we're not going to do any realignment or we're not going to tell the land manager we're going to do realignments because it's going to kick off a bunch of paperwork. We're just going to be told no. 
that was the understanding of NEPA. And y'all can't see Josh's face. He's like, I don't know. Nope. Um, because NEPA's hard. And so John Cox and I were both just like little kids, super excited. I'm like, oh my God, we get to do this thing we want to do. So um, he kind of told me the aim. And the aim is imagine yourself, this isn't really how the vehicle, how it'd be put up. But let's say you're at a trailhead and there's some pamphlets, or you're at a park, you're at a national park, right? And there's like a card rack with pamphlets in it. And I know they're not called pamphlets, but brochures. You know, you pick, they're short. You can read them. Maybe you can read them while you're walking to the trailhead or while you're driving after your adventure. You read it, you learn some stuff, you're done. It can be a launching pad for more things, but the information in it is correct and accurate um, and helps get you oriented around something. So that was sort of the level we wanted. And um, amazing thing about John Cox is uh, I've been on projects so somehow I've ended up being a technical writer for trials training. I mean, it's not surprising, but it's like, I didn't realize that I could make a living at this or any of the stuff I'm doing. Some projects I've worked on, they're like, it has to be three pages. And I'm like, well, is there a graphics theme? Like, can we do an infographic? No. Okay. <laughs> like, do you want this information to actually be useful? It has to be three pages. <laughs> like, okay. All right. And those are really hard projects because it's like the objective hasn't really been defined as it would like for a trail project. Like, what's our objective? You know, that's not John. He's like, we need it to be effective and short and concise, but it needs to be long enough to be effective. And I was like, oh, this is how every project should be, right? So off we went. I, I did read a few more resources that I hadn't come across previously. And I was like, yep. Still not useful <laughs> to the trail champion. And off I went, you know, it, we had a couple rounds back and forth of editing, but it really wasn't even that. It was just me sort of getting it to be like, okay, before I make this more polished, is this in the ballpark? And they're like, yes. <laughs> I was like, really? Yes. Keep going. <laughs> so yeah, I polished it up. Um, they sent it off to their graphics team and I, I did the final look because, you know, sometimes, you know, the editing process is tricky to make things look great. And um, God, it just, if y'all could like take my heartbeat right now, like my watch says it's 69 now, 76. That's all lies. Like my heart is like racing right now. Like oh, if I get hit by a bus this afternoon, I will have made the world a better place through an introduction to NEPA. <laughs> <laughs> the trail champions guide to NEPA because here's why people who know what NEPA even stands for they know why <laughs> NEPA is the National Environmental Protection Act and it came about I don't remember the exact year but I'll say 70s the intention is really good right it's in the context of land managers and outdoor recreation if you're to boil down the generic land manager mission it's Providing access, it's protecting the resource while providing access to the resource. And sometimes those kind of feel diametrically opposed. NEPA is a framework so that information can be gathered at a level so that good decisions can be made. And in outdoor recreation, those decisions look like the trail alignment. Those decisions look like water crossings, right? Where are they going to be? Um, how can we? You know, we talk about protecting the resource, but the best protection for the resource is to not to let any humans touch it, right? But that's not realistic. And that's, you know, it's not the great mindset, right? So air quotes, protect the resource and provide access. 
it's always trade-offs. And so it's sort of getting things to like, to a point to where it makes sense, like an acceptable impact on the resource and an acceptable level of access that like meets the needs of the users. And, you know, like Tony Boone says, I'm going to, I butcher all the quotes, but like, it's not the land that needs, no, it's not the people that need the trails, the land. Man, we go everywhere. We see a thing, we're going to get there. Through chainsaws, ATVs, our feet. We're going to get there. But we do kind of wreck stuff in the process. If the getting there isn't done in a thoughtful way. So this guide really helps orient the trail champion, opens the door to what NEPA is with the hope of it being early in the process, like you have a dream for a trail expansion. It opens a door that this is just as important as how you're going to execute the work, right? And, you know, recently you had, you had Steve Kasachek. Yes. Okay. Great. I was listening to your show with him last night with my daughter in the car, driving back from North Carolina. And I keep pausing it. And we're just like, yes, yes. Oh my God. I was like crying and like singing at the same time because we're all working on the same thing. And the thing we're all working on right now is like, okay, people know how to build trails. It doesn't mean everyone's doing it right. Okay. There's a lot of like, Things that are being right, but like we know that knowledge is there. The next step is all the rest of it. Okay, he talks about how important planning is and like what a good investment it is to like spend the 15K to get some damn good planning. So then you can build a trail system that not only meets the needs, but like, and is durable, but is maintainable, (laughs) right? And doesn't wreck the resource out of lack of planning. (laughs) You know, we can't foresee all the things. And NEPA is not a perfect process, but what happens is, you know, whether it's a trail builder, you know, whether it's a contractor who's building trail or the cooperator group who's full of volunteers or, or whatever, the, 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 you know, the local Amba chapter, I'm picturing all the phrases, we want a trail, we want a trail, we want a trail. And land manager's like, we have to go through the NEPA process. And everyone's like, no, (laughs) what does that mean? And it's even worse when a trail project has already been begun and NEPA hadn't been considered first and early. And it, it literally shuts everything down because suddenly there's a special little crustacean that lives in that creek that you are not planning a bridge across, right? So you're going to have all these users go across through the creek with their feet and it's going to wreck the crustacean's habitat or the one ephemeral flower that is ultra rare in the state and only exists right there. Suddenly, it's an all-stop, and an all-stop is a waste of resources. Now, it protects the resource. That's the natural resource or the cultural resource, but it's an all-stop for everybody else. It's a stop for the trail builder. It's a stop for the volunteer group. You get grant money that expires in eight months, and you're four years in. This wouldn't hopefully happen, but, you know, deadlines can be real as far as money expiring or the timeline for a trail builder, like professional trail builder that has to be on the other side of the country in two months. Like this has to be done. When NEPA isn't part of all that magical stuff. And, you know, Steve Kasachek, he was, you know, I was like, oh my God, I love you. Because he's like, NEPA is important. And if it's totally off the radar, it's a, it's a project wrecker. And everyone hates everyone. And they hate the land manager. And they hate the federal government. And they hate the poor one natural resource officer 
officer is not the right word, the, their natural resource specialist that's at the land manager whose office used to have 10 people doing natural and cultural resources, and now they have one, <laughs> right? A lot easier for the land manager to say no, because when they say yes, it's more work for them. They don't have time to train everyone in the NEPA process. And, and so the, the guide is the introduction in NEPA is to try to like get it on the radar. It's just as important as getting the concept of sustainable trail building principles on the radar early in the process so that you can get the right people involved to do that stuff right. That's the point of the NEPA, like the introduction to it for um, trail champions is like, you don't have to know all the stuff, but not only is this just as important, as sustainable troubling principles, which, you know, we're all kind of familiar with. It's, you know, it's like the fourth principle, <laughs> right? Like it is a lot, it's part of the process. And if you don't do it now, you're going to be forced to do it later. And when it's not done at all, it maybe it's maybe great outcomes don't really come out of that by bypassing it. And I love it when people are like, well, you know, we're just, we're going to stay, we're staying within the existing trail bed so we don't have to do NEPA. I just chuckle because I'm like, no, NEPA's already been done and you're, you're falling under the categorical exclusion. <laughs> so you don't know it, but it's, it's, it surrounds you. Um, you just don't have to do extra work around it. I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> yeah. And that, the categorical exclusion is, it has streamlined things. Oh, yeah. You know, like there's. And they need to be updated sometimes. And by the way, I'm going to interrupt you and then let you finish your sentence. CADEXs aren't written in stone. And if, if your trail system, the level of maintenance it needs, or the user, the visitor use management, the VUM issues have just exploded, and your CADEX is no longer working for your trail system, um, it's a malleable document. Well, and you just. So one of the things you brought up is staffing. And staffing in government agencies is, you know, it's. It's really and it's well, inadequate. It's it's inadequate, and so I I did reach out to an EMBA employee that I know who has been on the show to see kind of where he would want to see a, a question go on this topic of NEPA, and he talked yeah. about third party contractors. He asked if you know if you could talk about having a third party contractor help with that NEPA process oh, yeah. and what that does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you know, as you alluded to, um, a lot of land manager staff, and it doesn't. It's not just federal. And NEPA gets kicked off whether it's on federal land or it's federal dollars paying for the project. So a lot of federal dollars. Yeah, we should, probably should have defined that initially. That's okay. They can read the guide. It's really early in the guide. Yes. So things are changing. 10 years from now, we're going to be a different place because like the Forest Service and some of the others, they realize they really have to address this workforce issue. They do not have enough workforce to execute the mission. So... But that's what we're working in right now. And so especially, I would say, if it's a larger project, which, look, that's self-defined, okay? We're a project that has a lot of money, okay? Some of these projects are well-funded. You know, you're not tying shoestrings together with a bunch of free work. Some projects, let me interrupt myself. Ask yourself what the objective of the project is. So whether you're trying to make a legacy trail, which we have plenty of them on the East Coast, if you, whether or not you're trying to make that legacy trail more sustainable, or you're building something fresh, always ask yourself, what's the right thing to do? Not what can we do with our available resources? Always start with what's the right thing to do. What's the right alignment? What's the right level of construction? What's all this? 
it's a big salad. It's a big Venn diagram and you move the circles around. Okay. But when you're first starting out, what's the right thing to do? And what's the right thing to do for the desired experience? All the things. Often the right thing to do involves a level of NEPA review that's going to be a headache. So the question to ask is, okay, well, if NEPA is a barrier, if executing the NEPA review, which sometimes it always, I don't want to say always, often a piece of the NEPA review for a project through an area with sensitive resources, cultural or natural, involves someone from the land manager who, that's their thing, right? They're an archaeologist. They're a whatever, plantologist, fishologist, birdologist. Um, I do know the right terms, but. Snakeologist. Yeah. Herpetologist. Um, shout out to the frogs. They have to walk the flag line, right? Because they have data, but rarely does a land manager really have all the information. Because if it's an undeveloped track of land, they might not have done an inventory because it's just sitting out there. You know, it's fine. As soon as you start messing with it, now they don't know, know what's out there so that they can figure out, well, what do we need to be sensitive to? What do we need to actually avoid? And what can we, what, what do we have some vocal room with? So if your project to do the right thing requires a level of, I'm just going to say NEPA review, that far exceeds the capacity of everyone currently on the project, like far exceeds the land manager's capacity, there's a third way, which I didn't really explain the first and second way, but you hire somebody. Okay. And, and this includes for wilderness because wilderness doesn't mean do nothing. Whole nother show. We'll book it. You can hire, especially when uh, it's the right thing to do. It's like return on investment. If you hire a third party to come in and fill the capacity, like make up the capacity gap, project will A, actually get done in your lifetime. <laughs> and it can help you better use all of your existing resources. Okay, it'll help use your trails professionals, your planners, the folks laying out the trail. It can really complement the land manager's resources. You know, the humans they have sitting in there. It's called different things for different land managers. But the people who are there to protect the resource, it lets them do their job best. They love being out in the field usually, but God bless them. They're there's a thousand things pulling their attention. And so if they can out, if this, some of the stuff can be outsourced to provide them the right level of information they need to make decisions, it's the right thing to do. And there's money out there for everything right now. So it might take some crafty grant jujitsu or just talking to your donor. Hey, you know what? We're going to need extra, I don't know, money <laughs> to pay for this. And here's what we're going to get out of it, right? We're going we're gonna to be building this, trail or trail system, boat access, climbing access, that does better by the environment that's out there and actually will meet the user needs and meet the experience instead of us cobbling together some bullshit that's going to take forever and not really meet the needs. Well, and it, it circles back to the importance of planning. And you brought this up and I try to bring this up in pretty much every episode because when you look at how much it costs to plan something versus how much, versus how much it costs to build something, it's a fraction mm -hmm. of of the of the whole thing, and if it unlocks funding and unlocks time, as in like it expedites the process because you brought that third party in to make that project go forward in your lifetime, and you're pointing your finger at me because you have a thought, and it's keep going, keep going, like, oh. <laughs> well, because because the rest of it is is yes, 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 and 
you know, I started this as a volunteer. We just put band-aids on crap. It's basically just a something to go do with your time. You're like, yay, I'm out moving dirt. Yay. Was it effective, the stuff, a lot of the stuff we did? Doing the planning. NEPA is part of the planning, but it has often been forgotten. So I'm going to say NEPA and planning. Back to helping people be effective. We only have so many resources, time, money, people, land, cultural resources. Investing in the planning and NEPA being done properly and sufficiently means all the resources that get put into making that project happen saves resources down the road. It saves volunteer hours. It saves land manager hours for having to like, oh, I hate the blaming the visitor. Okay, the visitor is just, we're just out there doing recreation. Okay, like, uh, you know, you can't really force, you know, the whole, you know, Steve was talking about like, you see the slow down signs and has anyone ever slowed down? <laughs> you see the arrow, don't tread here. I mean, it helps. But like, okay, well, if you're not supposed to tread here because of the special frog, if we knew about the special frog, maybe, and it only lives here, maybe we could have put the trail far enough away from the special frog that we don't have to try to fix it with signs, which doesn't work. <laughs> it just saves so much stuff down the road. It's, it's all the resources that go into the planning in NEPA makes the resources that go into executing the project be more effective. And then you're not spending extra resources down the road fixing the things that were just off the radar or not accounted for. Um, and not because they things changed, but because like an inadequate level of resource went into the planning and the NEPA. Let's transition to education. Talk. <laughs> yeah. We have so many things to talk about. I know. And we're an hour and 40 minutes into the recording, which is kind of crazy because it doesn't feel like that to me. <laughs> <laughs> we might have to have a second one. Rockingham Community College and Duke Energy Trails at RRC, which is short for Rockingham Rockingham Community College. Yeah. Let's talk about your role there and what, and like really what, what led you to that role? Because we've talked about a lot of trail stuff, but we yeah. haven't talked about this one yet. And it's new yeah. for you. Pretty new. Newish. Um, where to start? Yes. So there's quite a few, so there's quite a few trails, just generic trails, programs that have propped up in higher education in the last few years. The story around Rockingham Community College is it was the first in higher ed. That may or may not be true because some of the ones like Oregon's been around for a while, but we'll just run with it. Okay. So <laughs> um, it was actually born out of the 2014 Duke coal ash spill on the Dan River, which was national news. And um, it's one of those things where like, it was awful good things have come out of it. And one of the good things that came out of it was about a $700,000 grant that was seed money for this program. And it's the Duke Energy Trails, which is an acronym, Trail Recreation Adventure Institute Leadership Service. They did their best. Like another person who came to like, Acronyms are awesome. And the, sometimes I have to look at my own card to get it right because it's so many words. <laughs> and the Environmental Planning and Development Program, which is a two-year degree program. So the TRAILS arm of this program, it's continuing education. Um, and TRAILS speak, it's workshops, right? It's, it's hands-on skills. You know, machine building, chainsaw certification, rock work, crew leadership. So for TRAILS folks, you know, it's, it's that kind of stuff. You know, it's the kind of thing that Tri-State would come out and do a machine workshop for. 
the environmental planning and development part is a two-year degree and has three areas of focus. It has the environmental planning part. It has economic development, like small business stuff, including like manufacturing. And it has the trails infrastructure. And again, trails generically, okay, climbing access, paddle access, all this stuff. The things you need to go recreate on. I'm the third director. The director before me, the first director, oh, it's just amazing. It's like I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. So it's a really good foundation. The workshop stuff is what got done, executed first. The second director got the, the two-year degree through. They invented it. They just, whew, out of the ether. Got it through the North Carolina Community College system. I don't know how good your audience can hear my sound effects. It had just gotten going when the second director left. And then they were without a director for like a year. Um, and in that time, I got approached <laughs> by the first director on LinkedIn. He's like, hey, <laughs> would you be interested in like being a teacher at this community college? Or he actually was like, we'd be interested in being a director. And he sent me the job description. I'm like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> this is three people's worth of job at a third of a person's worth of pay. <laughs> no, I can't. And I can't move down there. I mean, I could, but like, my life is here right now. My daughter's in eighth grade. The time she's seventh grade. So anyway, but the two-year program is amazing. And it's, it's those three areas. It really sets the stage for people to pivot. And then fast forward through a lot of story. I ended up applying for the job because I was being hired. I was being contracted to write course content. And it was just clear that without a director, it was the whole program was about to really die. Like going a little dormant is different than just being flatlined. I was like, Ugh. Like, how would I propose to y'all what it might look like if you hired me? And I did. I'm actually the first, they probably cringe when they hear this because I'm probably the first, I am the first remote worker they've hired. We're not really post-COVID, but whatever it we're in now. And they were like, we don't really know what that's going to look like. And I was like, well, I mean, I've been, I've been doing it for eight years at patent office. It might be messy sometimes because this is a very hands-on position. Um, but I, you know, I was like, what's your concern? They're like, well, how are you going to know if you're actually doing the work? And I was like, you'll know. And I was like, you can fire me, right? Like, if I'm not doing the work, you can fire me. And the person I'm on the phone with in the administration, she looks at me and she's like, oh, we can just fire you. I was like, you can just fire me. I'm like, I'm not a federal employee. I'm not union. I'm like, like you can just fire me, right? If, I'm not, if you're not happy. She's like, yes. I was like, well, let's hire me. <laughs> because if you don't hire someone, the program's going to die. And that's what we did. And I started in September. And it's amazing. And it is three people's worth of work. <laughs> They're worth a job. In my, I'll just tell you right now, consider this an invitation to all the listeners and all the listeners who know people. I would love to like create an endowment or something for this program. So I can have, this program can have like five of me at least three of me, but with different skill sets because all of me would not work in all those positions. But to really execute this program properly, because I was just dying listening to Steve. And then I was, I was catching Rich Edwards' podcast too because I'd missed it when it first came out. So I was trying to like cram it in, you know, this morning when I was driving and I was like, Rich, if you ever listen to this, I swear to God, I'm not copying you. <laughs> But like what's happening is like, you know, in the math world, the term, the idea of a fractal is like a complex 
shape. But when you zoom in on any piece of it, it's self-similar. So like, and on the teeny, I'm getting close to the camera. When you zoom in on the teeniest, teeniest piece of it, it's the same self-similar pattern as the big thing as a whole. And those of us in this space who are working on any of the following things, I'll enumerate them. Workforce development, skills training, foundational training, helping communities, entities, whatever, wrap their head around trails planning and what that looks like. Helping NEPA make sense and be an actual thing you can navigate. The back end of trails, you built it. Now you're going to maintain it. Don't get me started. There's a huge piece is it's missing out of trails planning. That's crazy. That's a show in itself and we should do that. We're going to do that. So all this stuff. So for folks who are like Rich Edwards fans and like know all the, all the amazing stuff he's doing in West Virginia, like <laughs> that's the need. You know, when I landed in Rockingham County, which is in the western part of the Piedmont of North Carolina, we're at the border just south of Virginia. It's beautiful. I love Piedmont. I feel like it's a secret. You know, mountains are sexy, but Piedmont's pretty. Um, and it's also pretty kind and gentle to work and live in. And you're close to the mountains and you're closer to the ocean. All the stuff he's making happen in West Virginia, rinse and repeat, small scale in a town, medium scale in a county, larger scale in a state, bigger scale in a region, nationwide. And we are going to be a piece of it here at Rockingham Community College. Um, we're hoping to get our first actual workshop executed in a couple of weeks, but you're like, how can I sign up? It's like, you can't sign up yet. <laughs> you know, we have a need with our local land managers. And so they're kind of getting first dibs. You're like, this, you know, this associates and applied science sounds amazing. How can I sign up? And I'm like, you can't sign up yet. Um, but we'll have classes back on, you know, in the fall. So everything right now that's happening, things will start to be, I think, made more public in the next couple of weeks. I'm excited about the ITS. Yay, Reno. Um, the ITS is my favorite thing ever. And this is going to be amazing. I'm doing all these things. So so I, uh, it's a whole separate show, but like not only Rockingham, but what's happening across the country, the different trails programs, they're a weird fit in community college at the moment because they haven't been in these higher ed spaces, community college and four-year school. There's going to be growing pains. There's going to be failures. There's going to be things in the ditch. And that's okay because... Those of us who are working in this space, sometimes we have to really make it make sense for administration because our programs don't make sense to administration and they don't always make sense to the workforce development area. Even the people who like need the people we're going to be producing, they're like, well, why do you need it? You don't need a two-year degree to run an excavator. You're like, you're right. And I'm not telling you, you do. But how great would it be to come out of this program and be effective at your job at the county? When you've been told, okay, you're in charge of our natural surface trails. And you're like, all right, yeah, I'm actually oriented in this space. Like I have a good foundation and I have connections and I have had some workspace experience and I kind of know what I don't know. And I know what I need to get going to be effective. Like that's my vision for our little piece of this. And, um, you know, I've got a lot of big visions for us, like working together more across these community college things. And I've been reaching out, you know, I'm only one person doing the, you know, um, so it is exciting. And all this is going to look different like 10 years from now. But right now, all of our programs are like, if they haven't already been defined and if they aren't already functioning well, 
I think a lot of them will be. And my goal is for none of these programs to fail, you know, and I want more, I want us to have more um, communication across each other and see what's working or what isn't. And they're going to end up looking a little different to meet their regional needs um, and just meet their capacity of what they have to make things happen. But there's not enough trainers. There's not enough skilled trainers to, (laughs) not enough trainers to train their workforce. And so it's like, we have so many choke points in the trails industry writ large right now. And it's like, I'm doing my best to unchoke a lot of them. <laughs> and all of us are. So is Rich Edwards. So, you know, so is, you know, a bunch of us, a bunch of us are working on the same thing. You know, Mike passed through at American Trails. You know, we're all seeing this pattern, especially as we talk to each other, like, holy crap, we're working on the same thing. Like, let's hitch our carts together and actually like, transform some of these complaints into solutions i could keep going but like <laughs> no that's that's i mean I, I'm, I'm 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 processing this let's just say i know <laughs> i talk too fast <laughs> no it's just it it's interesting to see so many higher education learning institutions start to latch on to this type of stuff you know i just had i don't remember the name of the school but i just had uh thing forwarded to me via Facebook messenger from a friend. He's like, Hey, my brother-in-law just forwarded this. And it's another school in North Carolina. I should probably. Oh, look McDowell it Tech. McDowell Tech. Outside, is that outside of Asheville? I'd have to look at my map. There's a couple schools in North Carolina doing this, but the one that's in the media a lot right now. Yeah. The person who um, was our first director. Yes, it was, It's McDowell Tech. So I had a, yeah. you know, so he, my buddy yeah. lives here in La Crosse where I live. Mm-hmm. His brother-in-law there in North Carolina, he's like, hey, do you, have you heard about McDowell Tech? And honestly, like mm-hmm. as much as I try to dive into this stuff, I hadn't mm-hmm. heard of McDowell Tech. Yeah, because they're new on the scene um, and they're filling a need out there. And, you know, the person who was our first director, Tim Johnson, you know, he's very much a collaborator like I am as far as like some of the problems that we have right now is because so many things out there recreation have been stovepiped historically. And, you know... <laughs> And it has a bike on it, so it's not relevant to hiking trails. And like, get your horse off my trail. And like, God forbid you have a motorized vehicle, right? Like, <laughs> but the principles are really across the board, how users act and some of these things, they're really actually universal. So anyway, I'll, you know, I have a call scheduled with Altec like soon, you know, so we can sort of talk about like, okay, what are you doing? What's your problem? Like, what are you having a choke point? What's working well? Across the country, we're going to have to share some resources for a while because there aren't, I'm going to say it again, there aren't enough trained quality, whether you want to call it an instructor or trainer or even administrator, program administrator, there aren't enough of us to do all the things. There's not enough of us for it to be hungry, hungry hippos and not share with each other. So we're going to have to get kind of scrappy as we do because we're drills. To make sure your buddy that came out of the boat when you flipped it, like we have to go rescue the buddy, <laughs> right? So he can get back in the boat and help us on the oar, you know, help us paddle the raft down the, through the rapid. Because uh, it's, it's, it's not the same as starting a nursing program, right? That's well known. There's plenty of trainers. There's textbooks. Everyone knows how to do it. Like there's analogies for days, but it's exciting. And, you know, there's also this issue that I almost don't want to, Someone's going to be like, Martha, what are you doing? We don't have good certification processes. Like, you know how easy it is to like create a certificate? You can like, that thing you held up to me, the certificate, like, it's just that easy. I got a bunch of certificates here. What what (laughs) what other one do you want? Right, right. 
So, you know, the chainsaw realm with the Forest Service, that's an established credential. You know, um, wilderness first aid, a pretty, like if you show up with a woofa, like I kind of know what you can do, okay? Um, if you show up with a sustainable trails building certificate, you're like, mm, well, what do you do? Like, where do Let's you get to you? Who taught you? <laughs> I know who taught me. Right? So, and he's, we from, have some he's from Georgia. You know, I mean, and it's like, it, it, we're still in that stage where let's say I'm a trailblazer and I'm hiring people and you show up and you're like, I'm going to be like, I am going to say, who taught you? And if I don't know that person's name, all right, well, let me see what you do. And, and trust me, verify is fine. Like trust, but verify is fine. But like, we're not even in the trust part of unless we know the person. And it's a choke point. And so it's going to look different at a point in the future to where when you show up with a certificate, the person hiring you is going to have a little more understanding of what that brings. And it's, and it's not, it won't, you know, it can't be some bureaucratic, like I'm a robot. I came out of this drills program, da, da, da. But it's a, it's a place of growth. We're going to have to get there to make these make sense and to um, help the hiring process. Yeah. And there's a lot of hiring to happen too. So. Oh yeah. There's not enough people to hire right now. There's humans. They just, there's humans with skill and aptitude, not with skill, with aptitude. Um, they just don't have great vehicles to get the skills right now in a way that actually is effective. Yes, for sure. And there's a lot of stuff that is, I mean, the trail industry is as old as trails are. Like they've literally been around since before roads and everything else. I mean, they're, I mean, it's prehistoric, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a young industry. It's just, which is weird to say. It's young in the professional sense. That, and that's what and, I mean in the professional sense. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. what and, I mean. And it's funny because that tends to be a third rail. I think some folks here, it needs to be professionalized. And I think they feel threatened. Um, I think they're worried that it's going to be less fun. I think they're worried that they're going to have to like buy insurance. Um. Buy insurance. <laughs> well, if you're going to work for a government agency, if you're going to get a contract, they're going to require that. So, Right. But there's plenty of, there's plenty of paychecks that don't require it. Right. There's plenty of checks being written. So, um, you know, the whole pay living is it. So it's, I think folks feel threatened and that's okay. Sometimes that's just an indication of like, it's long overdue and there will remain, there will, there's so much space for everyone in this, but what we don't want is, so, you know, I teach rigging and, um, you know, shout out to Dan Dewicki and Patrick Wilson, who as volunteers dove into, you know, industrial rigging standards to really understand, okay, how is this equipment designed to be used? Because if we use it differently, if we use it outside of its design parameters, then the working load limits and all that is off the window. Okay, like using soft slings on sharp edges, rocks, right? Like, okay, so everyone, you know, folks like, we've never had any problem. We've never had anybody get hurt. And I was like, but someone could actually die. Not yet. And not, right. And it's not, the near misses I hear about once people start talking and I'm like, gotta be talking about these near misses. The chainsaw world has, that stuff's discussed because we learn about it. In the rigging world, it's like dirty secrets that we only talk about a few beers in with each other in close company. And it's this kind of stuff that I'm like, as the industry grows and we work to meet this workforce shortage of skilled people, we have to professionalize some of this stuff for a lot of reasons. And part of it goes back to 
opening the door for people who aren't currently represented in the industry. Because, okay, once you go hire a 25-year-old who, God forbid, came out of college and understands what it means to be in a safe working environment and understands what emotional safety looks like, you know, throw them out without a safety talk in the morning, without a lick of safety culture, doing some cowboy trail building. You know, it's easy to put on a nice shirt and go talk to the land manager as the boss, but what's really happening out there on site when you're, when the, the land manager is never walking out there, okay, to check on things. Not a good practice, but it does happen. Okay, so they're two months in and, you know, they roll an excavator. No one had hard hats on and they rake, you know, someone in their crew, you know, with the teeth of the bucket in a way that better training, better safety culture, and God forbid some PPE could have prevented an injury. You know, they're going to be like, you know, this is not a safe working environment. Like, maybe I'm going to go work for somebody else who I actually know I can, me and the whole crew can go home with a little more assurance that we're not going to get hurt. And God forbid they watch there be a lack of health insurance to actually cover a lack of whatever it took to actually cover their friend that they raked, you know, and, you know, and I'm just saying like, it's all been fun and it'll continue to be fun, but like the industry is at a choke point in a lot of ways that some professionalization, only good things are going to come out of it. Yeah. And I do think some of that has to do, or some of that can be solved with just letting people in different government agencies know that there is a professional industry and professional standards with this because we're not, I mean, we're not there with certain, you know, local parks department might not know it's even an industry. Local parks departments don't require chainsaw safety training. Oh, my, my. Make it make sense. You know, and, and, and what we're seeing as chainsaw trainers is folks who reach out to me and it's because they have a new boss who during the great COVID shuffle He's like, you know, maybe maybe someone who's left the arborist industry and is now the manager of a, you know, local city parks and rec being like, wait, what? You guys have no chainsaw training? We're stopping. We're, can you come to chainsaw training for us like next month? <laughs> because they know about it and they know the benefits of it. Like, yes, getting the word out that there are professionals and this is what professionalism looks like. And here's how to sort of see someone's portfolio and here's how to like, suss out like what are you actually getting yeah well let's wrap this one up we're gonna come back and do some more we i mean I, i'm excited we have, we have to do more of this because this is pretty awesome but let's wrap this up for this one with some closing comments mm -hmm. or thank yous or maybe a piece of martha wisdom that you'd like to leave the, the listeners with it's a good question um i think whether you're already working in this space obviously people listening are sort of in the trails and out the recreation space when you're listening to these shows, you and others, and engaging in things that you really enjoy, you can ask yourself, do I want to do more of this? Like, do I want to be a, a different part? Do I want to be more engaged? There's a lot of opportunities to maybe be more engaged. Or let's say you're already working in this industry and you're feeling kind of stuck. Um, you don't have to stay stuck. Reach out. Start tracking people down on whatever your social media channels are. Every time, Joshua, every time you have a guest, you know, listeners, write that guest's name down and follow that person, right? Or email them, like, 
are you doing blah, blah, blah. Like, can I call you? Honestly, the answer is often yes. Like, you know, let's all work. Let's do more working together instead of like feeling stuck and bitching about it. (laughs) That's a good one. I like that. It can be cleaned up for a family-friendly audience. That's all right. This is, we don't have to clean that up. We can be be totally real. Well, Martha, that's, yeah. I really appreciate your time. As as you've alluded to several times, there needs to be th- at least three of you in what you're doing. And that's just with the Rockingham Community College stack the stack all the training that you're doing, safe, chainsaw safety and everything else with your Becton Trails and volunteer work in the DC area and traveling to different conferences like we're going to be traveling to here next month. Well, I say yeah. next month because it's going to be next month when this comes out. Yeah. Well, look, you know, for the listeners who are like, do I, am I, am I enough? Am I, am I worthy of going to one of these trails conferences? Because sometimes it's easy to think like, oh, I'm nobody. I'm just a volunteer or whatever, or I'm never going to find the funding. They're not that expensive. You know, get a crappy Airbnb with everyone, you know. (laughs) It is Reno. I mean, there's going to be more, there's going to be more lodging there than a lot of places. Yeah. Come out, sign up, you know. All you got to do is Google, you know, American Trails, PTBA, ITS 2023 and go there. You know, if if there's, it probably won't be any workshop spaces still available. It doesn't matter. And when you go there, not only collect people's cards, but immediately sit there on your smartphone and email them or follow them on the socials and talk to them and make connections because there's not that many of us in this space. And a lot of us have that helping nature. It'll open up your whole world. Yes. That's a good way to close this one. Good. Yay. Thank you, Martha. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Josh. And thank you for doing what you're doing. Thank you for listening. Links to the various topics discussed in the show can be found in the show notes. If you like what you've heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. Also, if you're new to the Trail Effect podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. If you listen to the Trail Effect podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcast, please don't forget to leave a rating and review, as this is one of the best ways to show your support for the Trail Effect podcast. Also, check out Cooley Creative at DoJustSendIt.com for all of your custom website, e-commerce, photography, and other needs. That's www.DoJustSendIt.com for Cooley Creative. I'd like to thank all of the listeners and guests who have signed up to be supporters of Trail Effect through Patreon. These actions mean a lot to me. With that, the value for value concept is something that has caught my attention. If you find value in the Trail Effect podcast, you now have a way to provide value for that value via Patreon for Trail Effect. For additional ways to help support the Trail Effect podcast, check out the Partnerships and Affiliates link on the Trail Effect website, where you'll find links to Kettle Mountain Apparel, Worldwide Cyclery, and Trail One Components. By using the affiliate links found at www.traileffectpodcast.com, a small commission will come back to the podcast, which helps keep this thing going. This podcast has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. Thank you again for listening.